I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by Dante Labs, the global leader in genomics solutions for rare diseases. With their Rare Disease Health Package, they offer comprehensive whole genome sequencing for rare disease patients. To learn more about Dante Labs and how they're revolutionizing healthcare, visit us.dantelabs.com. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Once Upon a Gene podcast. I am your host, Effie Parks, and today I'm so honored to share a conversation with an incredible advocate and mom. In this episode, we're exploring her journey through the intricate world of rare disease advocacy. She unveils the concept of transitioning between the Valerie place, where medical realities are confronted, and the Marie side, where the personal essence of her daughter shines. Thank you for joining me as we delve into this delicate balance between medical insights and heartfelt storytelling. Please enjoy my conversation with Issa Dean DeWoody. Hi, Issa. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Effie. It's a real honor to be on your podcast. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to talk to you. I love following you and learning about your family over the years. And I know so many people are excited to tune in who know and love you. And I'm really excited for new people to hear from you as well. I know you have so much valuable information to share with rare disease families. Well, that is very sweet of you to say. Likewise, all the good things about you. So like I said, it's a feeling of arriving in the space and it's it's really nice. <laughs> well, how about we get started? Can you share a little bit about yourself and your family and your connection to our rare disease world? Sure. Our journey in the rare disease world started a little bit over 18 years ago with the birth of our third daughter, Valerie Marie. And three months kind of into her new little life, she started having seizures. And uh, we were actually pretty quickly diagnosed that she had a ring chromosome, so ring chromosome 14. And it's curious, a lot of people talk about the long uh, diagnostic odyssey, but 18 years ago, uh, the best diagnostic tool for finding ring chromosomes was the was a karyotype, and that was kind of the test of the day. And we were very fortunate to have her first care at Riley's Children's Hospital in Indianapolis. And they kind of did that test in the background with us not even having to fight for it. But we got back the diagnosis and nobody had had much to say about it really you know uh, in all of their experience they'd only had one ring chromosome at Riley's Children's Hospital and I think if I recall right it was ring 17 so we scoured the internet as as parents do to kind of find out some information and and kind of a very similar story was there wasn't much 
out there. But my husband happened to be a geneticist, not a human geneticist. He works in evolutionary biology, but he was kind of uniquely equipped to read the literature and to kind of, I don't know, really get a sense of what a huge problem this was. And and it was timely in that Ring 14 Italy had formed just a couple of years prior to Marie's birth. And we were invited, you know, we had the opportunity to attend an international family conference, their very first one when she was only about 18 months. And that kind of set us on this path of, you know, what it what it looks like, what it feels like to be a part of, you know, a rare disease community. And I have to say, Effie, at the very beginning, like many parents, you know, you're just so overwhelmed with the situation, just dealing with all the medical emergencies that are a part of Ring 14, in particular, kind of, you know, this unrelenting epilepsy and, you know, the, the delays and the just lack of ability to really thrive. And, and then you have a career and then you have other children. And so you're just trying to, to manage it all, right? And so it wasn't until Andrew was invited to participate in one of their first research workshops, he got invited due to his background in genetics. And I kind of tagged along. And, and I have to say, just being at that small gathering, I think there were only 15 different researchers in the room, many of which had never heard of Ring 14, but who were invited to Italy. So they came and were able to share their kind of research interest. And then we all kind of brainstormed about what these various expertise, like what could they lend to the field? And I really, I got inspired like most parents, like some parents do with the, with the research side of it and just the, the value of or the feeling that you could really contribute to the well-being of the community. And, and if I can just be really honest, I know that you appreciate that. My first inclination was kind of, I'm going to be the best, okayest, average advocate out there. You know, I'm going to do what I can while I'm still trying very much to be an active part of all of my daughter's lives. I have two older daughters. And and so my first intention was really, what can I do to raise funds to kind of help these research efforts along? And it really wasn't until probably in the last five or six years where I felt like, you know what, I can become more engaged in this community. We can do things here in the United States. I can collaborate with some of these other excellent leaders, especially in the epilepsy, in the rare epilepsy world, and then kind of found my way into this other problem with these larger structural anomalies, copy number variants, various names, but but these syndromes that are really defined not just by a particular gene, but by this whole big region of your genome that's kind of affected. And here we are today. Wow, what an amazing story. You're one of the OGs for real. <laughs> are you calling me old? Is that code? Oh, no. An OG. An OG is quite different, okay? It's more of like a trailblazer. Thank you very much. So cool that your husband had, you know, that grasp that kind of opened that door a little more and, you know, had a little more understanding of it, especially at a time like that. And that you got in when she was so young, like to the environment, right? 
I think it's so powerful now. What we see now is that it's these brand new families that are coming in and they have they're armed with all of this stuff now. You know, they have the patient advocacy groups and they have the social media and they have the all these different kinds of supports right out of the gate. Whereas even just six, seven years ago, like that really wasn't the case for most rare disease families. And there's just so much power in a family with a young kid in what they can do advocacy wise and how much people will come and circle around them in that support stage in the very beginning. So I'm glad you sort of somewhat had that back in 2011. Yeah. Hey, listeners, I want to take a moment to talk about Dante Labs and their groundbreaking rare disease health package. If you or someone you know is facing the challenges of a rare disease, this is a game changer. With their advanced whole genome sequencing, Dante Labs provides a comprehensive view of your genetic makeup, helping to pinpoint the cause of a rare disease and offering potential treatment options. Dante Labs understands the time is of the essence for rare disease patients. That's why their results are available within weeks, not months. Plus, their pre- and post-specialist consultations offer invaluable support throughout your diagnostic journey. So, if you're seeking answers and support for rare disease, turn to the experts at Dante Labs. Visit us.dantelabs.com to explore the rare disease health package and take charge of your health today. You lost Valerie Marie earlier this year and quite suddenly, which is just unendingly sad. And I know how much everyone misses her and is deeply affected, especially in the rare disease community. You know, when, when there's a child that's lost, it is just horrible. But I know not everything's horrible. So I was wondering if you'd share a little bit about Valerie Marie and what made her so special to you and why it reverberated so much throughout the community. Well, first, I just have such um, gratitude for the community because in the wake of her loss, because we really did feel quite supported. And I can't tell you how really humbled we were by the impact and just the generosity of other foundations, not just the Ring 14 community, but the other foundations who reached out to us to say, but it's, it's, it's a reminder of how really fragile our children are. Let me just back up a little bit because we've kind of been going back and forth between calling uh, my daughter, you know, Marie, which is what we all refer to her as in, in our family. And indeed, all the people who meet her socially, that's how she's introduced. Uh, but I, I kind of made it a point to say my daughter's full name, Valerie Marie, because I think it makes first that that's her real name, Valerie Marie. It's her full name. And when she was born, we kind of, she came a little bit early, about three weeks early. And even though she was our third child, I have to say, she kind of, from the very beginning, she caught us a little bit off. You know, she, she arrived early. We were a little bit unprepared. We were still going back and forth, even in the delivery room on names. And we settled, we didn't settle, but we chose the name Valerie Marie very purposefully. And Valerie comes from my mother's name. My mother's name is Valerie Amber. And Andrew's mother's name is Minka Marie. And so we merged those two names together, Valerie. Marie. We always kind of knew that we were going to call her Marie. And especially when she came out, Effie, she was just so tiny, you know, and Valerie just seemed like too big a name. Marie always just felt comfortable. But wow, of all my children to saddle with, 
you know, just the, the problematic nature of going by your middle name. Boy, I really knocked it out of the park with naming my my Marie, giving her that, you know, that second name that she was going to go through. And what began to happen as we started, as we, you know, were quickly plunged into the medical world is that, you know, her insurance card, all of her records, all of this, it's its Valerie Marie. And so uh, we'd come to the doctor's office and, you know, they'd say, oh, you know, Valerie's here. And we'd, we'd go, yes, yes. But we call her Marie. And then the second time you'd go up there or to a hospital or anything, I couldn't win for losing. If I said Valerie, they go, don't you mean Marie? Don't you call her Marie? Oh yeah, 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 I do, okay. And if I came in going, this is Marie, then they would go, but her name is Valerie. And so there's always kind of been these these two names. And in time, it really personified in a certain regard, different aspects of my daughter. And so Marie kind of became synonymous with my daughter, like the individual, the personality, you know, all the things she liked, all the things she feared, all the challenges, but the really personal aspect of my daughter, that's who Marie was. And then Valerie kind of took on, you know, just more the clinical presentation of who she was. And so if you were going to talk about symptoms and medical emergencies and things of that nature, then it was it was almost like a way to compartmentalize that aspect. And, and what I found is as she was growing older that I was constantly trying to find this balance of if they referred to her as Marie, then I knew, oh, they know her in this medical sense. I have to inform them of who she really is as, as a person to invite, you know, empathy and to create value around her. That was kind of my job. And then in another aspect with all my friends and family and the, you know, the social media following that you kind of gather when you start to become an advocate, I think it's also really easy to veer to the side of these are our triumphs. This is my beautiful daughter. These are all the really good things. But in truth, there needs to be a balance there with the realities of what it looks like to care for a child like Marie. So I don't know, it's, it's this balancing act. What setting do you know my daughter in? What do I need? What kind of information, what kind of stories do I need to tell so that you get, you know, a rich and well-balanced idea of who she really is? Does, does that make sense? Yes. And I love this so much. I know you and I talked about this last week and it's definitely something I know we all do, but maybe we aren't really aware of it. I love how intentional you were or are now about it, because I think for me personally, it's something I've always called going ice, which isn't necessarily the healthiest way of putting it. But you have to do that in these settings. Right. And we talk about the importance of balancing these perspectives. I think that's what we're talking about and how these children have two sides and it's this medical component and then like their unique essence 
And the question is, and the hard part is, and the mental and emotional part of it is, how do we manage to strike that balance between sharing these amazing inch stones and joys of their lives and how much they create change everywhere they go? And then also the challenges that they face due to their medical conditions. And so I wonder, can you elaborate on maybe the importance that it had for you of maintaining this balance? And what do you hope people can understand about our children beyond their medical conditions with keeping them both so important? Yeah, I, I, I think one of the main things, Effie, is to recognize who your audience is. And so when I am speaking to like my scientific advisory board or when I am giving a talk where I know that the vast majority of participants are researchers in the room, or even when, well, I'll, I'll just leave it at that, but there becomes a point when you're giving talks where, where you want to be who you are and you want to represent accurately who your daughter is and indeed who who the community is that you want to serve, right? So it's not just about our children, it's about the community. But in order to draw them in and to invite empathy, these personal stories are necessary, right? To add value and to try to get them to side with you, if you will, in your plights. But then when you're talking about medical complexities and you know, really heartbreaking things. You have to maintain a certain distance. You can't be so emotionally invested that you veer off the path and you're not able to actually talk in logical, concrete steps. Like if you're talking about research initiatives, then there is a certain you want to be able to communicate with the, sci with the scientific community in a way that doesn't necessarily make them uncomfortable. And I don't know if I'm saying this quite right, but a, a little bit of distance sometimes in talking about the clinical aspects can be to your advantage. In this situation where I have to explain to researchers that now we have her brain preserved in a brain bank and how do we utilize this really precious resource. I don't want to be too emotional in that room. You know what I mean? I, I want some distance from that. And so thinking about Marie as a Valerie in that situation kind of affords me just just a little bit of of distance so that I can do my job. And, and then on a very flip side of that, when I'm giving a talk at a charity dinner where most of the people out there in the audience I've brought in as friends and family, right? So um, that that's a different setting. And I tap in more to Marie in that setting. But then I want to share the realities with them because if I don't share the realities of life with her, then I don't provide the why you need to give. You know, the why is, is because we need serious science and because these kids have real problems and that requires money. So they have to be able to, they have to know her value, but they also have to be brought in a little bit to the technical and the medical realities so that they see the science that points in a direction that they can contribute to. Mm, yes. 
So well said. What would you say to the families listening who almost feel like it is a bit of a betrayal to our kids to lean one way or the other in trying to convey this, you know, in their stories or in their advocacy or to their friends and family or even, you know, potentially stop them from being an advocate of any kind because they feel guilty? When Marie was about a year old and she was, seizures were still new and clusters were still new and we had a, you know, a very defined, like, emergency treatment plan, a seizure action plan. And at the time, her her seizures were such that her eyes would roll back, she'd hold her breath, one arm might raise, but it was it was not convulsive at that time. And it was pretty it was pretty mild actually in retrospect. But but what would happen is that she would be in a seizure for about 30 seconds and then she would be out for a minute. She'd make eye contact and then all of a sudden she'd go back in and we would cycle. And these clusters wouldn't stop until we administered an emergency medicine. So at the time we were using uh, diastat or diazepam. And so our protocol was that we had to wait 15 minutes. I don't know why 15 minutes, but but that was the protocol. And so there was this time period where you're sitting there, you're watching this and you're watching the clock and you were just waiting for that moment to intervene. And it was terrible. And every time it would happen, I would catch, I would, you know, for the first couple of years, I would just cry, you know, uh, not like bawling, but you know, where the, you just have those really hot tears that just kind of run down your face and you can't stop them. And in this one particular moment, I remember my husband coming into the phone, Andrew, into the room and he was behind me. And I said, I will be so glad when I don't cry every time this happens because it's apparent that this is going to happen for a long time, right? That, that, that This is not changing in the near future for us. And he, he said to me, he said, Isa, I hope that you never stop crying during these moments and kind of whew, hit me. It, and it's one of those cases where both of us said was so true at the same time. So I was essentially saying, I hope there comes a time where I don't feel like I'm living in crisis all the time. I hope that there comes a time when I develop some kind of, of, of barrier so that I can act and not always feel this so much. And Andrew was saying, I hope that you always feel this. I hope that you always stay tender to this moment. And the reason I bring this up is because I think that this is a real statement that there's always going to be tension in these kinds of medical crises where you want to stay tender, but you want to be able to act. In the same vein, when we're talking about new parents and their role of advocacy and you know, when to lean into Marie and when to lean into Valerie. There's a tension there, right? And the the trick is is being able to hold both these truths in tension, but in a healthy tension, right? So tension can, you know, if you think of taffy, tension can be such that, you know, it just separates, right? And, and that's not good, right? When, when you just kind of come undone under the tension. But strength is only formed 
under tension. And, and so it's being able to hold these things in balance. And I would say to the new parents that this is going to be a part of your reality is, is holding these two truths at once. And the, the goal, and you'll find this, is to, is to find that balance where it produces strength and not an undoing of itself. And you know, cut yourself some slack because sometimes you're going to lean one way or the other. And that's just, that's just the reality of the situation. So you're not always going to hit the right tone, but if you can kind of visualize in your head what a healthy balance looks like and keep your eye on that goal, then I do think that it becomes easier with practice to kind of hit that mark. That was a profound explanation. And I love that reminder of strength and undoing, you know, and visualizing it as that taffy. I think that's a really good visualization for people to keep in their heads and that it's a practice, right? And finding a way to transition to the Valerie is a healthy coping mechanism Absolutely. that allows you to manage the emotional weight while being an effective advocate. It gives you clarity and it helps you remember the questions that you have to answer and gives you that mental space. And you have to figure out a way to strike that balance between detachment and maintaining emotional connection, right? Yes. Yes. Do you have any advice or sort of tips that you used along the way for your practice for families who want to tell their story or, of course, who are the administrators of all of their children's health in all aspects from school to the hospital. Do you have any advice for them in learning how to share their story effectively with that balance of objectivity and emotion? Well, I think it's always best to start off in the emotional realm. You want that hook that draws people in. So whether it's a an IEP meeting, you know, with the school system, or whether it's a, a talk at a local fundraiser, or whether you even have a, a more, a bigger platform, you know, at a conference or things like that. I personally like to start off with a personal story that invites the audience into into my world in a very personal way. And that requires, you know, being vulnerable up there to, to people. But I think it's well worth the cost. And then for me personally, how I can transition to more specific things like in an IEP meeting, okay, this is my daughter, but this is what she needs. And so, or at a fundraiser, this is my daughter, but this is what the foundation needs and this is how we're going to use. So then I transition into a more scripted type conversation where, where I have organized my thoughts in a way where I have, where I try to have very clear ideas that I want to get across to the audience and very clear ask. And I think one of the ways that helps you can transition into that once again is to have this clear outline of what you want out of it. But also, you know, statistics and numbers and, you know, quotes and things like that can be a way to take that emotional energy down 
just a notch so that you can proceed then with with the formal ask or the I don't want to say it's the meat, but but every talk kind of has to have a point, right? And so it allows you to get and transition into that point, if you will. Really helps you find that call to action, yes. especially depending on who you're talking to. Right. Right. That's really helpful. I love this conversation so much because we talk about telling your story, telling your story, you know, make an impact, make it short, know what you're talking about. But you can't just know how to do that necessarily and do it effectively and concisely and really make the change that you're looking for as easily as it sounds. No, it's a skill. And goodness, I certainly don't always, you know, rise to the mark that I would like to sometimes. But but I will say that practice is huge. And then also this this element of what is the time of your talk, this consciousness of, okay, this is a situation where I need my elevator speech. You know, I, I need that quick pitch so that I think everybody should have in their back pocket at the ready. But I would also say that, you know, that needs to be that needs to be updated and uh, every so often to reflect the reality of your situation now. And I have to say, Effie, this is this is one of the things like I'm in a transition state right now. How does my story change now that my daughter has passed away? How do I effectively enter that into the conversation that I'm a former caregiver in a way that doesn't feel isolating to me or to the recipient of that information in a way that still invites empathy into the situation and you know different people have have different ideas about this but but just really up front I'm I'm kind of a, a pleaser and I, I'm a person who wants to make everybody feel comfortable in the room and that's sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes you know harder some sometimes people should probably be less concerned with other people's feelings but I have to say I'm still um, I haven't quite got that down yet you know what I mean that's that's a work in progress for me right now and it's 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 one that has really led me to t- to really think about this difference between Valerie and Marie and how to integrate them seamless, seamlessly because now her loss has to be a part of my story and but I want to do that I want to do that gracefully and in a way that always, always honors the beautiful soul uh, that I had the honor of caring for. I know you said that you're not a caregiver anymore, but what I've discovered from listening to thousands of stories is that a rare disease parent is a caregiver for life. And you're also proving that practically because you have continued to find strength from somewhere to advocate for other children. And that is incredible. And I wonder, one, how are you finding that strength? Where are you drawing it from? Is it from those those memories of Marie, like you said? Is it just this kind of beautiful discovery in this transition period that you're talking about, that you're learning, that's kind of invigorating new ideas for you? What do you think it is that's kind of giving you sort of that breath still and so so soon? Well... First, I want to say that 
that I have really ugly days, <laughs> days that I wouldn't want to talk to anybody uh, about this. So, so let me let me just set that stage. But but another thing is that this community has become such a part of me, such a part that I love, such a like I just coming back to the fact that. In addition to losing Marie, I don't want to have more loss in my life right now. And so in as much as I'm able, and that varies from day to day, I want to keep this passion alive in me. And I also will say I'm going to go back to Andrew kind of knowing the real complexity of the problem right off the bat when we found out that my daughter had a ring chromosome. And so when I came into this community and when I was kind of, you know, inspired to to really push the the research side of this forward, and I'm going to be really honest, that's what my motivation was at the beginning. It was also with this real realization that I might not be able to help my daughter and that I think that that's a it's a little bit of a different perspective than what everybody comes into the rare disease community with and I'm I'm not saying it's better it's worse it's just different it's a different perspective and so by being around the community and oh my goodness seeing all this drive and this urgency then that has inspired me to be more urgent in our community, but also as the years have gone by, you realize what an important component just support is. Just support. Just carry these families, listen to these families and what they need. And so I say that, all of that, to hopefully answer your question in a sense, is that my perspective has always somewhat been to help other people's children you know what I mean? To help the community at large. And if I could do something for my daughter's life, then fantastic. So that part has not changed since we lost Marie. You know what I mean? That that still really rings true to me. And then as I've gone through this journey, then I see how important good clinical care is, right? How I see how important it is to improve the family's quality of life. And that includes in a large portion support. And so I'll just go back to the fact that I don't want any more loss in my life right now. And so for me to to sit in the shadows right now almost seems like more loss. And I'm not ready to do that. My hands just on my heart. Everything you said is music to my ears and really the mission of it straight to my heart and remembering that support aspect and how that's the foundation of everything that we're all doing. I think you're going to make a lot of people think today. And I love that. And I think you're going to make people live a little truer today after they listen to you. And I love that you think about this balance in not just Valerie and Marie, right, but in all aspects of being a human being and being an advocate, because it is like that, right, in all aspects of our life, but to really figure out how to be aware of that and give the things the space that it needs when it needs it, and to also recognize that it is so easy to get stuck in a hole and that you have to make sure that that muscle doesn't 
atrophy <laughs> and that when you're having those those kinds of days or those kinds of whatever they are to know that you just have to leave the door open just a little bit been a really nice conversation. I always wish I was just a little bit funnier, though, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's hilarious. I think everyone just like wants to just, just snuggle your ear. just literally the sweetest thing on the planet. Okay, so before we go, I did just want to ask about one thing, because you mentioned the precious gift that you donated Marie's brain to research, or Valerie Marie's brain in this case, to research. And what a remarkable decision, right? Could you tell us a, just a little bit about the reasons behind it and the potential impact that it could have on our rare disease community. Yeah, sure. So honestly, it was at one of the these research workshops, you know, that Ring 14 International had, and it was a discussion, you know, with the researchers at the end of the talk, like what what's our path forward? And I just remember several of the of the experts there in the room saying you you need to think about how to do brain donations in the event of a tragedy and one of the things that i'm feel very strongly about is that i would never approach a family in a time of crisis and make an ask like this in crisis but if our community is aware that this is a possibility and it's something that they can think about when they're not in crisis and kind of have some kind of an idea of whether or not this would be something that they would want to participate in or not, then you can illuminate the path, the way to make that happen. And so, and I'll be honest, Ring 14 didn't really have a clear path to this, but I have some pretty awesome friends in in this space. And I'll have to say, I, I give a complete shout out to one of my very best friends, Vanessa Vogel Farley. And I knew that she had developed that path pretty well for the Duke 15 Q Alliance uh, Foundation. And, and then I knew that uh, Alicia Holiday had come to their our joint conference with them and had spoken about the Autism Brain Net that's funded by the Simons Foundation. And so I knew that these paths existed. And when we knew that Marie was not going to walk away from this situation, I just had to, all I had to do was, was make a call to Vanessa and say, can you please make this happen for me? And she did. And Carolyn Hare at the Autism Brain Network just took over and they made this as painless as possible. I mean, they just took care of it. And I just really have such gratitude for them for making that so easy. But there are so many critical questions, in particular with ring chromosomes, that might be able to be answered from from this donation. And so for me as a as a leader of the foundation with a heart for research and really knowing that this was a way in my mind to really honor Marie's life and to continue on her legacy in a way that that could be really impactful to to our community could really inform research strategies I, I don't know it was just 
it was so important to me, Effie. And it just, it, it happened. I had the right connections and it happened in just a really smooth fashion. And, and so now we're setting out, you know, clear steps on how to make this uh, possible in the future for other families. And, and then secondly, really thinking through how do we utilize this resource? How do we make the how do we make sure the best researchers are thinking about this and know that this is um, an asset, a very personal and beautiful asset to the community. So I, I would just encourage foundation leaders. This is something that's very hard to talk about, but I think it it needs to be talked about just so that families know that if that is in their heart we can make it happen, but utterly without pressure, utterly without pressure. I have a big smile on my face thinking about those radvocates that you could call. And I hope, I hope everyone listening has one of those. There's a, there's like a meme that's ran around for years about how a special needs parent fell in a hole and blah, 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 blah. And I call those people whole sisters. And I'm so glad you had a whole sister to call. yes. And that's the thing is that even if you don't feel like you have that person, reach out to someone in this community because they can connect you with one and someone will help you. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's why it's so important for other leaders to know other leaders. So it's almost like two different communities, right? You have your own personal community that you work with and you're trying to, to run this, you know, alliance, foundation nonprofit, whatever you want to call it. But then also you have this kind of different level of this different network of fellow soldiers, right? Fellow rare advocates. And you just have to tap into that resource because there is always going to be somebody who has a different skill set than you do that you can synergize with and y'all can make things happen. You know what I mean? A mentor in the field or, you know, just a just a fellow sister who's walking along beside you learning it together. I mean, these kinds of people, they're so critical in your life. Amen. Oof, I know people learned so much and you just really dropped some some very important reminders and some inspiration. And I'm just so grateful for you and your dedication and your perseverance. And thanks for your time and your commitment to making a difference. And I wish you all the strength and all the advocates by your side forever and always and Marie's legacy to continue to touch so many, so many hearts and be a part of creating meaningful change and literally being a world changer. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for being my guest and having this honest conversation with me today. Well, thank you, Effie. Thank you for what you do in the community. Give Ford and Ezzy a hug and I hope to meet them someday. (laughs) But All right. Thank you. A special thank you to Dante Labs for sponsoring this episode of Once Upon a Gene. To learn more about Dante Labs and how they're revolutionizing healthcare, please visit U.S. DanteLabs.com. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. 
Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.